0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. If you're watching at home, online, good morning to you out there. Glad you could join us. Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 37. As, uh, as we were singing, He will hold me fast in the services today, I was thinking about how wonderful that is, the assurance that, that Christ holds us fast, doesn't let us wander from him. He's an anchor to us. But I was, as I was thinking about this psalm and, and other scriptures, that he uses his word as an anchor. It, it holds us fast. His word holds us fast. It calls us back to him. It anchors us in truth. And I pray that that will be evident to all of us here and true for all of us here this morning as we look at Psalm 37, which is a Psalm of David. It's a wisdom psalm. So it's a little different in who it addresses than most other psalms. Most you know the psalms, typically they're prayers or praises to God. Some of them though are wisdom psalms and they're intended to teach you. They're addressed in fact right to you as the audience. And that's true of this one. As a wisdom psalm, it. It's in form, it's a lot like one of the later chapters of the book of Proverbs, so there's not like a distinct structure to it. It's a collection of aphorisms or proverbial sayings that are unified around a common theme. And what is the theme? Well, the theme of this chapter, of this psalm, is one of the great mysteries of life, one of the big problems of life, one of the hardest things to deal with for us. Scripture does not avoid such things. It opens them up, and in opening them up, it also provides solutions, teaches us how we should think about them, how we should feel, what we should do in light of these things. Well, what's the mystery or the dilemma or the problem here? It is this. Why does God allow the wicked to prosper? If it's true that God is not mocked and you reap what you sow, that's a deep, Seated principle of the world. Certainly it's something taught in the scriptures. You reap what you sow. God is not mocked. If that's true, if it's true that it, by following God and his ways, it leads to life, just like the, the, the law itself says, do this and live. The man who follows his law will live by it. If that's true, why do the wicked seem to do so well? And this is not an uncommon topic of inquiry or discussion in the scriptures. It's the focus of one or two other notable psalms. Psalm 49, Psalm 73 both deal with this same mystery or theme. Asaph, the author of Psalm 73 asks this about the wicked. He says, or he observes this about the wicked. He says, there's no pains in their death. Their body is fat. We don't have the same relationship to fat that the ancient world did and still some parts of our world have. Today, to make that translation, you might have to say, well, they're they're buff. (laughs) Why am I so fat? (laughs) Their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men. Their Their eye bulges from fatness. So he's thinking about, he's observing the wicked and their prosperity and how easy they have it in life and their comforts, and he's just like, he he feels the dilemma. And what comes out of him next is a sort of despairing, hopeless cry, a cry that shows how close he came to wandering away from the Lord. You remember what it was? Surely in vain have I kept my hands clean or my heart clean, my heart pure. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. I remember growing up sometimes uh, you'd see somebody, you'd come across somebody who made money easily and without too much effort. And a hardworking person in my family like my dad or my uncles would say, well I guess I have the wrong profession. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. I must have the wrong job. So this is a problem of life that people struggled with, struggled to understand back at the time of David. Is it at all relevant for you and me? In our weekly Proverbs study with some of the young men, we were looking at a couple of verses from the end of chapter two of Proverbs where it says this, for the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. And we ask the question, well hey guys, what does that make you think of? And immediately one of the young men said, America, right now? But not like, oh yeah, that makes sense of America, but rather, what gives? (laughs) Like, immediately my mind goes to the the disparity between those verses, and reality around me? Why do the wicked seem to prosper? The election that just passed feels profoundly contrary to the desires of the righteous. So this is something that we feel acutely, feel very deeply. Psalm 37 wants us to look at that problem, wants to help us think about it correctly, rightly, and to know how to resolve it or rather how God promises to resolve it for those who wait for him. Let's read Psalm 37 together. This is God's word and it is eternally true. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious towards wrongdoers for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. For evil doers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man may be no more, or will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls... He will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed." The posterity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would speak to us, that you would open this passage of your word up to us, that we would be taught by it strengthened by it, rebuked by it, and changed by it, so that we can live lives that are pleasing to you and that we can maintain a good hope in these trying and difficult days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So again, the problem, the dilemma, the mystery being looked at, contemplated here in this psalm is is how on earth, why would God allow the wicked to prosper? and by comparison, the righteous to do so poorly. And Many of us are feeling that dilemma right now, acutely. It's relevant to us. See just how relevant this psalm is to our current situation. I'm just gonna read like four sentences from it and just sort of let them hang out there. Just think about them and think about how they relate to right now. Verse 35. I've seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Trees love their native soil. They do well there. You know, you, you, When you're planting trees, you want to know which climate zone to plant it in and also what soil type it likes. They can do poorly or they can do well. Well, here it says, I've seen a wicked man spreading himself as if he's in his native soil. Have we seen, anybody seen any wicked men (laughs) spreading themselves out like that? Verse 32, the wicked spies upon the righteous. Anybody feeling monitored? 21, the wicked borrows and does not pay back. I, just before coming in here, the the national debt is climbing towards 28 trillion dollars. Verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. I think this captures our experience of life pretty well. Now, how can God let that happen? The fact that it does so, that he does so, is a mystery or a dilemma. It goes against, so many profi- seems to go against so many promises of scripture and our own God-given sense of justice. How would the psalmist teach us to think about this, to act in response to it? What solution does this psalm propose? And here we're very vulnerable to the same temptations that uh, Asaph was facing in Psalm 73 as he looked at at the wicked. He's feeling their power, their pride, their success, their wealth. And he's thinking, yikes, what am I doing? What am I missing? He's tempted even to run away from the Lord. And this, this psalmist knows, David knows, that's our temptation too. And he wants to He wants to steer us in the right way. Here's here's the way he teaches us to think about this and the way he teaches leads us to go. And right off the bat, we're given things not to do. What not to do, first of all. And that is, don't fret because of evildoers. That's what verse one says. Don't fret because of evildoers. And that's a warning that's repeated again in verses seven and eight that says, do not fret because of him who prospers in the way. Because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Are you fretting? Are you fretting? I've talked to many of you. I know myself. I know there's lots of reason to be concerned. To be discouraged. To wonder. To be afraid. Are you fretting? Where will that get you? Remember what Jesus says about worry and fretting in Luke 22 and other parts of the Gospels? He says this Which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour of, to his lifespan? And I, then I love this. If then you cannot do even a very little thing, <laughs> it's not a very little thing, is it? But even if you can't, if you can't even do that, add a single hour to your lifespan, why do you worry about other matters? Worry, he's teaching us, will get us nowhere. Worry gets you nowhere. It's powerless to affect any positive change. So we'd, we'd say it's fruitless in the sense that it doesn't produce any good fruit or lead to anything good. But it, that does not mean it's neutral. Fretting is always producing something, it's leading somewhere. Where does it lead? Well, we see it right here in this passage. It leads, verse 8, to evil doing. Some of the sins that are connected with, with worry, with fretting, are indicated there alongside it, anger and wrath. Fretting snowballs into anger and anger into wrath and the end result of that is evil doing. Remember what James says about anger? It does not achieve the righteousness of God. It heads in the opposite way it, it leads to evil doing, and where does evil doing lead? This is very important to hear. It's very clear in the next verse: for evildoers will be cut off. Don't fret. It leads only to evil doing, and evildoers will be cut off. So uh, fretting is not a minor thing, or a little danger. It's a very serious thing that we need to guard our hearts against and we need to protect others around us from, because our fretting can infect others and harm them. Fretting is one of Satan's lies. Your heart says, I'm feeling upset, I'm feeling concerned, I'm feeling troubled and afraid by something. What should I do? I need something to do. And Satan comes in and he says, here's what you do about it, fret. And what fretting will do is by It will so focus your mind on the problem that by like quadrupling down on it, you'll finally figure it out. You will thread the needle. You will find a way of escape. And what is that? It completely takes your eyes off God. You cannot look to God and fret. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, I will not be afraid Fretting is a lie of Satan and it's self-defeating. It leads to being cut off from the Lord. So take fretting seriously. The next thing it says not to do is to not be envious towards wrongdoers. Don't envy them. How do wrongdoers prosper? How How do they get to where they are? It's the, the secret to that question is hidden in their name. By doing wrong. So there are ways to, to seemingly prosper. There are ways to advance yourself, to improve your position in a worldly sense that are wrong and are evil. And it makes you, if, if you do them, an evil doer. But evil doing does prosper people. There are a lot of people who are very rich and prosperous and comfortable and and healthy and happy because they're evil. I was thinking about how to illustrate this and the thought that came to my mind was how often it is in in high school and maybe even just in school in general for the cool kids to get cool by treating everybody badly. That's how they get cool because they get everybody to, to fear them and in fearing them, that's like, and they're manipulative towards them, and it's like they put people in and put, move people out, and you never know where you stand, and so you're always trying to impress them and please them, but they're just bullies, and it's evil. And if you've experienced being put out by them and being hurt by a bully, well, one of the cool kids, you know how it feels. And it's tempting to want to do that yourself, because everybody wants to feel accepted, everybody wants to be a cool kid. There are ways to become one. They're often very evil. And there's all kinds of examples like this in business and in life. There are ways to get rich that are evil. God says to guard our hearts against envy because envy, we see the 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 seeming prosperity of of the wicked, and we think, "Man, I want to be prosperous," and we try to imitate their methods. And God says not to do that. I've been godliness is the opposite. You know, we're supposed to be godly in how we approach things, how we pursue success, wealth. There are godly ways to pursue these things. And godliness may not get you an immediate result or a quick result or the same result, the degree of the result that you see the wicked having, but it will lead there. Godliness does produce good things. So I've been thinking about the difference between these things. Often in the scriptures the wicked are related to the grass that springs up quick. Or, the, or people who don't, uh, aren't sincere Christians are, are, are like described as things that spring up quick. And when the son of affliction and trouble cares of this world, you know, they, they're gone. Temporary, not lasting. On the other hand, the scriptures talk about uh, the righteous often under the terms of a tree. I have this sign or painting that uh, my wife got me for a birthday once. It hangs in my bathroom next to the mirror, and it says, you can't grow a beard in a fit of passion. <laughs> <laughs> you can't grow a tree either. It's slow growth. Slow growth. As most slow-growing trees are the strongest, hardest, longest-lasting trees. They're the they're the the most expensive trees too. I don't have very many trees in my yard. All my trees really are along the front. All my mature trees are along the front and probably the road county is going to come through and take them out eventually, preparing myself for that sad day. So I'm planting trees left and right because I hope someday to have trees in my yard. It's going to be decades and decades of waiting. This is often godliness. Godliness. Slow growth, plodding, a little seed that grows a little bit each day, each year, almost imperceptibly. This is the pattern of godliness set before us in scripture. It will get there eventually, and when it's there, it will be glorious and strong and long-lasting, unlike the wicked, which sprout up and seem to have an early, immediate success. You heard the expression of flash in the pan? That's the wicked, they're flashy. The godly though are slow, they're quiet. And they wait. And that's the solution that this psalm puts forward to us. Over against fretting and envy, God says this, in verse seven, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Verse nine, those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. So we're to rest in God and wait on him with patience. That does not mean do nothing. We're gonna see that there's a lot of imperatives in this psalm, a lot of commands to do. do. There's a lot of activity that flows from this resting and waiting upon the Lord with patience. It's not inactive or sedentary at all. There's a lot to it, a lot of activity required that flows flows from it. But this is the heart of it. It all flows from here. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. And there's reasons given for our patient waiting on the Lord. On the one hand, because the success of the wicked is only apparent success, it's not real, it's not lasting, it's not guaranteed by the Lord and it won't last forever. And on the other hand, the success of the righteous is guaranteed by God. It's not maybe fully realized yet. But it will come, and when it comes, it will last. And there's examples of both of that idea um, throughout the psalm. In the, the verse one says, don't fret and don't be envious. Four, verse two, those people, wrongdoers and evildoers, will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Verse 20 says, the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. Evildoers in verse nine are said, "To be cut off, they will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, what? They'll inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more, and you'll look for carefully for his place, and he'll not be there, but the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So one day, eventually, brothers and sisters there's going to be a great re- reversal of fortunes. And this is a mystery. It's hidden from the world because the world thinks there's no benefit in being a Christian. Why would anybody be a Christian? There's lots of benefit in these methods, which for who cares about God anyway, but God says they're wicked, fine, okay, that's, you know, if you want to live that way, go for it. one day though brothers and sisters there will be a great reversal of fortunes and we're called to put our hope in that day and wait patiently for it now as we wait what does waiting patiently look like well this psalm opens up a number of things that we're commanded to do i think it's worth just saying that this is god's strategy for winning talks about the land and we're thinking a lot about our country and our land and our nation. It's not at all wrong to hope for better days for our country, to long for them, to pray for them and to work towards them. We should want, it's not wrong to want a good outcome for our children. A lot of us are thinking about, oh man, things are getting so bad, what's gonna happen in the days of my kids and my grandkids? It's not wrong to want good things for our country for our kids for ourselves how do we get there what's the best thing we can do (laughs) and is it a winning strategy but it is you see so many times assurances here in this psalm that the outcome is going to be good and prosperous and it 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 will you'll be happy when it comes and when you see it how do we get there though? What is the strategy? What is the plan? What's the curriculum? Well, I'm gonna, we'll go through a few through representative samplings of imperatives that God calls us to. But I, I'll just say this. There's absolutely nothing extraordinary about them. It's just a lot like basic godliness. And that's what God is calling us to. In a time of great difficulty and a time of crisis, a time of concern, we need to buckle down, we need to double down on basics. We need to be especially faithful in these places moving forward because these are the things God guarantees to be successful in his time and in his way. Number one, verse three, trust in the Lord and do good. I love the simplicity of that. It doesn't get more basic than that. Believe God and obey God. Trust in the Lord and and do good. Faith is our starting point always because without faith, it is impossible to please God. It doesn't matter how otherwise godly your methods are. Without faith, you're you're not pleasing God. That... Statement, trust in the Lord and do good, comes just after those warnings not to fret and not to envy. And here's what Spurgeon says about that. Faith cures fretting. Sight, natural sight, when you're just looking around you and judging things by your own senses, sight is cross-eyed, and it views things only as they seem to be, hence envy. Faith, though, has clearer optics to behold things as they really are, hence Peace. So do you want to be free from anxious worry? You want to put envy to death? Ask God to open your spiritual eyes. Look to him. Listen to his word. Trust him above your own understanding, perspective, and puny sense of things. Trust in the Lord. Remember the Lord, who he is. Think about his power, his justice, his goodness, his provision. Meditate on him, on his faithfulness and his wisdom and his care. And then what? You're exercising your faith, you're looking to the Lord, what, do you, what should you do? Do good, obey him, walk in his ways, act as if everything he says is true and that you believe it. Remember what James says, faith without works is dead. So show your faith by your works, obey God. Doing good, uh, verse 27 of this passage says, depart from evil and do good. And so the command to do good is, is ultimately a command to repent. It requires turning away from evil so that you can give yourself to good. It's not even enough to just turn away from evil. You have to actually set yourself to something positive to do. And God has given us positive things to do here. The Christian life is a life of repentance, a life of saying no to sin. And to bear the fruit of that repentance by works of obedience, by saying yes to God and to his commands. Trust in the Lord and do good. That's the first part of this strategy of blessing. Number two, this is in the second half of verse three, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. That's a beautiful and expressive statement, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. It's the language of settling in, putting down roots. It sounds hopeful, confident even. Calvin says it's so confident that it's, it's as if God had already brought you into your inheritance, he would plopped you down there and he said, here you go, the Garden of Eden. Have at it, tend to it. What does it look like if we were to dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness? But here's some things I think it does not look like. It does not look like wishing that you live someplace else. God has planted you here. He's intended for, for you to succeed here, to love here, to settle in here. Pining after a different town, a different city, a different state, a different county, a different country, a different situation is not contentment. And it's not obedience. That does not mean nobody can ever move, okay? Lots of reasons to move. But you know what I'm talking about. We can spend a lot of time wishing we were someplace else and not living a life of faithful obedience to God here. here an example of this is all the time many of us have spent, the minutes Possible, possibly ours. Many of us about wishing Texas would finally get its act together and secede. (laughs) Don't put your hope in Texas. God put you here. Here's where hope is, right here, because God has put you here and He's at work in and through you. So be hopeful about that. It does not look like retreating into the world out of fear or. Uh, depression or discouragement it does not look like being listless and lazy and directionless or purposeless it, if you're going to dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness you've got to know that you're here for a reason you've got to find what that reason is and you've got to set your hand to the plow it does not look like living your life on social media be here now in this church, in your home, in this community, build real relationships with real people. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. It does not look like growing cynical. A lot of us have a lot of cynical things that we think and say. Things like, you know, I, I, don't, I just don't want to bring children into a world like this. That's a cynical thing to say and there are many others like it. God says dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. And that's, that's an optimistic, hopeful call. You can't obey that command and begrudge it. You can't be- obey that command and feel you know faint-hearted. Wishing you were someplace else. Twiddling your thumbs. Be here, grow where you're planted. I think that's the idea, grow where you're planted. Be hopeful about your future and your children's future here. Act like you own the place. Take responsibility for it. Love your town. Don't be afraid to mix it up with people in the town. Reach out to them, work with them, get to know them. Build your church. Start a business, plant a garden, open a school, get to know your neighbors, serve on a board somewhere, tell everybody you see about Jesus Christ. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. The next thing, verse four, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Don't be a grumpy pants. God is good. It's delightful to know and to serve him. Anybody here had the blessing of having a great boss sometime in your life? Uh, At Adams, yeah, I saw some hands go up, that's awesome. At Adams um, visitation viewing evening, I I was talking to a few people in line, a few young men in our community, and they were talking about their love for their boss. And I was like, why, why do you love your boss? Well, because he disciplines us. Really, you love him because you, he disciplines you? Yeah. He's fair. He gives us encouragement too when we need it, when it's deserved. But when we're doing something wrong, he corrects us. And I just, it was just so clear to me that that man was so sincere and truly delighted in his boss. And just think what a little taste that is of the privilege and the honor and the joy of serving the the father of heavenly lights, marching in his army, serving under him, under the, the command of his son. Delight in the Lord. Don't forget him. Rejoice in him. He's good. He's got a firm hand, but a tender hand. And he loves you. Turns out that that's the best way to get what you want. Remember what Jesus says? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It says the same thing here in the psalm. Delight yourself in the Lord and what? He will give you the desires of your heart. You can't game that system though. What is it? Was it Bob Dylan I can't remember, Aaron maybe would know the song. You think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wondering desires. <laughs> I don't know That's what song that is, but Bob Dylan wrote that, I think. You think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wondering desires. You Got to serve somebody. Thank you, Aaron, uh, Andrew. And that is True. And there's a lot of people who use God, godliness, and scripture, and religion like that. It's just an errand boy to satisfy their desires. If you delight in the Lord, truly, sincerely seek his kingdom and his righteousness and love him, everything else you need will be provided you. What a wonderful promise. And so true. Number four, commit your way to the Lord, verse five. Commit your way to the Lord. When we commit something to someone else, we entrust it to them. Recently, we entrusted your dad's body to the ground. We say that in the funeral liturgy, the the committal service. We commit his body into the ground. Why do we do that? Why do we say we commit it into the ground? Because we, we're handing it over, we're entrusting it, something precious to us, to some, something or somebody else. Why did we do that with, why do we do that with bodies of the ones that we love? It says, and it follows it up, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. We commit things to God in hope. So commit your way to the Lord. He's laid the way out for you. Dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness. Commit that way to the Lord. Pray to him. Samuel Johnson, who wrote the English Dictionary, a very famous historical dictionary, had a habit in his life. Often at the, at the beginning of a project, he was a writer, so sometimes he'd sit down and say, here's, here's my next project I'm gonna work on. And he would co- compose a short prayer and he would pray, often at two in the morning, it says. A lot of these prayers are, are said timed at two, two or three a.m. in the morning. Here's an example of a prayer of Dr. Johnson's. Almighty God, the giver of all good things, without whose help all labor is ineffectual. That means it, it's hopeless, it's weak, it can't accomplish anything. Without your help, Lord, all labor and work is ineffectual. And without whose grace all wisdom I'm the writer, I've got wisdom. All wisdom is foolishness, is folly. Grant, give, I beseech thee, that in this my undertaking, your Holy Spirit may not be withheld from me, but that I may promote your glory and the salvation both of myself and others. Grant this, O Lord, for the sake of Jesus Christ, amen. Lord bless me, so be it. Isn't that wonderful? How often do we set ourselves to the challenges of our day, of our week, of our life without prayer? Commit it to the Lord. What does he say he'll do? He'll do it. (laughs) Commit it to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. What will he do? Now this is one of the most bodacious statements of the psalm, I think. It's just, I don't even know how to begin to convey it. But listen to it. This is what he'll do, verse six. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. day. Think about the, the sun, the great sun in the middle of the day, bearing down on all and illuminating everything. And you think about your little puny acts of obedience and righteousness and your sense of incompetence and weakness and the hopelessness of it. Especially in a day as dark as ours. At best it's like a little spark, maybe, and what does it even mean? You know, what difference does it make? This is what God says he's gonna do with it. He's gonna bring it forth in a blaze of glory. He's gonna fan the flame of it. He's gonna grow it until it is as big as the sun and as bright. Trust in him and he will do it. And wait for him to do it. Here's a couple of the more implied imperatives of this chapter. In verse 16, we're told to be content with what we have. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. So it's tempting to envy the wicked for their riches. But God says that the little you have is better. Why is it better? It's better because it has God's blessing on it. it comes from his hand. And has, it, he says here, it's from me, it's for you. <laughs> and you know that and you receive it as such. And it's just full of blessing. And even the supposed blessings of the wicked are a curse to them. They have no gratitude, no sense of God's favor. They're they're, they're desperate to pile up these comforts and these securities around them so that they don't have to worry about God. And you don't have to worry about God. And so the little that you have from his hand, if it be just a little, in fact, you receive with gratitude and thanks and wonder and peace and joy The little you have comes with God's blessing and God's favor and the assurance of his love. And the wicked have none of that, none of it. And they're desperate for it. So be content and grateful with the little that God has provided you. It's far better than you deserve. And there's much in the humblest of circumstances to rejoice in. Verse 21, teaches us to be generous with what we do have. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. Lending, the, the generosity of the righteous is featured in the psalm at least two or maybe three times. The righteous is generous with what he has. He's free with it. Brothers and sisters, as pastors and elders, we have rejoiced in your generosity and your faith in and cheerfulness in giving this year. It's been amazing to us. So I don't have any challenge to issue there. What about hospitality? Are you opening your home to others? I know COVID even makes it weird there. There's a lot of people to serve. There's a lot of people that if you invited them over would come. Come. Open your door, share your life, share your home, share your food with people. Be generous. This is a sign of godliness and of righteousness. Lastly, verse 37, we're taught to be men of peace. Mark the blameless man. Pay attention to him, says the psalmist, and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have a posterity. What's a posterity? A legacy. His name will last. People will talk about him and remember him for many years to come. A man of peace will be remembered. Remember what Jesus said? Blessed are the peacemakers. Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans in Romans 12, If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, conflict is often necessary. It cannot be avoided. If you avoid conflict, and that's your M.O., you're not a man of peace. Because conflict is absolutely necessary for the maintaining of peace. The Bible is not a pacifist document. Jesus is not a pacifist. He engaged in conflict all the time. The most intense kinds. Conflict, even violent conflict, is a necessary fact of life for the establishment and maintenance of peace. So don't get me wrong, to be a peacemaker oftentimes requires a willingness and ability to engage in conflict. Don't be conflict averse and think you're a peacemaker. (laughs) Don't judge people who engage in conflict to maintain peace. But conflict for conflict's sake is not good and it's not peaceable and it's not peacemaking. Conflict always has a point and the point is peace. If it doesn't have that point, it is not godly conflict. Seek to promote peace in your home. Maintain it in your home, in your communities, in this church, in your classrooms, peace at work, Make it your goal. And what does God promise to peacemakers? The man of peace, he says, will have a a legacy, a posterity. He'll be remembered. This is a sampling of some of the things God calls us to. In a situation where the wicked are prospering and in control, in the seats of power, and we, we feel little and afraid. This is the stuff that God, this is the curriculum for for the way forward. The path forward is right here laid out for us. And that's a representative sampling. And it may not seem like much. It may seem pretty weak and puny. It's not flashy. But this is God's strategy for success. This is a winning plan. This is how the kingdom of God is advanced. It's the way that the church will be perpetuated, passed on to the next generation. This is the way that the dough of the world will be leavened. So don't grasp for the extraordinary solutions or the violent solutions, or whatever the promises are that are dangling out there that are gonna get you out of this mess. Look to God. And give yourself to basic godliness in patience and hope. I hope that this week you will read over Psalm 37 a number of times. It almost preaches itself. Read over it a number of times. Meditate on it and ask God to give you faith to wait on him. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. And he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it and amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be an anchor for our souls in a time of unrest and storm. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to wait patiently on you, to put our hope entirely in you, and to follow your ways and not be led astray into evil, into faithlessness, Would you encourage our hearts, strengthen our spirits, Lord, for serving you. Renew our commitment to godliness. And I pray, Father, that in time, you would produce a harvest of righteousness through this church and through each of us. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen.